Welcome back to 665.66UHMR Camrat Radio, your direct neural feed to the truth of box free in's mouth. The Midhives are in an uproar over a brutal string of executions that have been against multiple members of the clans over the last week. Each site has been marked with the Brazen Kraken's calling card, leading most to believe that House Amotis might be cleaning house before they make some bigger moves. You know, Ryan, the Kraken is known for his ice flowing through his veins. Makes me think of uh, all this Kemp snow. Damn cogboys can't seem to keep any of this hive wall machine spirits happy. Don't know what that's about. Well, we're held up down here in the abandoned Davers Ark Asylum on sublevel 598, enjoying the haunting at... Wait, why are we here again? I said I didn't want to go to jail again. This is the plea deal. It's, uh, you know, the I, I like the atmosphere. It's nice and, you know, keeps, keeps you on your toes. I summer here. I... <laughs> well, it's the vibe, man. You saw the doormat, right? You wiped your feet? Yes. It, there was a doormat? I, I, I think. Just go with it. <laughs> yeah, his name's Carl. He likes croissants and lumps. <laughs> Make sure you rub your cleats in counterclockwise motion. <laughs> Keeping us warm tonight in these haunted and snow-choked hallways, I am your mohawk-crested plasma fiend goblin king. Today, I am joined by my co-host, the gunslinger of the sump, Marky. I like the sound of that. And graced today by a special guest all the way from the uppers, we have Ickbard. Tell us, how is the Glacial Marauders owner's box seat this year? Uh, it's pretty good. Um, I, I may or may not have rigged some bets, and there may or may not be some, you know, lovely, lovely families dangling over pools of acid if I don't have my team win. Damn upper hivers, man. They have all the fun. Wow. Wow. Hey, you want some clean water? <laughs> What's that? It's the stuff that we suck off. Two toilets. Life, apparently. It's two, to- two toilets. <laughs> two toilets. <laughs> What's that? Twice filtered. So, so today we are starting a series on crusades or campaigns, depending on, on, on the way that you look at it. Now, a lot of times when we talk about Crusades in current gameplay, we're talking about a specific type of gameplay. However, campaigns in Crusades have existed in Warhammer 40k for a long time. Crusades, obviously, because in lore, Crusade is thrown around a lot. But campaigns Mm -hmm. have existed in war games, board games, strategy games for a very long time. However, before we dive into what campaigns are, and how to utilize campaigns. Uh, With episode one here, we wanted to go over what the modern campaign is, what crusading is, and how it fits into the game. Yeah, so crusading, or crusade play, as as what you would call it now, actually has a... A rule set, because narrative gameplay and campaigns haven't exactly haven't actually had an established rule set till I believe, I believe ninth edition, if not eighth. Like but late, yeah, late uh, eighth, early ninth. Some, some, yeah. Eighth had, eighth had scenario play. Right. Yeah, yeah. So there's open play, match play, and they now have crusade, which used to be essentially narrative play or campaigns. And crusades essentially, or crusade play, has essentially taken over narrative play with its established rule set, and it's a nice foundation to, to build off of if you're going to play a campaign or a narrative game. It's, it's now 
the established rule set where before narrative gameplay and campaigns would have house rules, essentially. So you would come up with house rules. And this is more coming from a, a point where after you've either played the game for so long, you want to spice it up, you come up with these ho- these house rules. Or if you're trying to play the game and not, you know, a competitive a- aspect or, you know, just if you're trying to play with, like, your little brother or with family or, again, like, if you've been playing the game forever and you just kind of want to spice it up a little bit, this is the type of play that you would or this is the type of game that you would play to enjoy that, to build a story, to to enjoy the game from a different point of view. Right. So how does Crusade work? <laughs> when we were getting ready... Okay, editor's note, calf slap emoji here. <laughs> so when we were getting ready to run our Crusade uh, about two-ish, two-ish years ago... You had done a bunch of research into how crusades work. You- I did, and I totally forgot everything. So when oh, Ryan's okay, like, hey, perfect. we're doing a crusade episode, I'm like, cool, I have no idea how that's going to work now. <laughs> he has a theoretical degree in theoretical physics. Thank you right? for asking. But yeah, so the way crusade works is it's almost kind of like if you've ever done an escalation league, maybe at your uh, local game store. Escalation is kind of like you build yourself from the ground up. So like an escalation league would be like, oh, hey, you buy a box of like 500 or buy some boxes 500 points worth of an army and you play that army and then your next game you would you know buy some more build some more that that's kind of traditionally how it's ran but normally you go you know you bring a 500 point list and then your next game's a thousand points and then 1500 and so on and so forth until you're reaching like a huge game right so what crusade does is it kind of builds this foundation for you you build yourself like a roster and the roster is you would uh you create an army, not in the traditional sense of, you know, these are the points that I'm that I'm putting towards this specific model. It's more on a power level. And, I mean, this could obviously change as uh, 40K progresses into, you know, the future. The future. Or depending on how you play. If you're, if you're going to use the Crusade idea backwards, right. you, can, exactly. you can do points. Right, you can. But the way Crusade is essentially built off of, it's built off power level. And the reason for yeah. that is because you're not building a unit per se in the sense of I'm going to give this guy this thing, this guy this thing, this guy this thing, and now that is worth 500 points. In this sense, it's you can give them whatever you want and they're worth a certain amount of power level. And your power level is obviously based off of what that unit is and how many are in it, not so much what they are equipped with. So if you give your intercessors or firstborn Marines a bunch of special weapons, heavy weapons, they're the same exact power level as if you would if they were all vanilla. And this kind of makes it a little easier to digest, a little easier to control. You're building this power level, but your army is locked in. So once you produce an army, that army stays that way. So if you built a guy a specific way, it stays that way. Now, this can change as you play, but initially this is locked into your roster. So that roster, you build a roster, which is normally larger than what you would normally which is larger than what you would play as your first game. So you build a roster, right. for example, of 50 power level. Your first game is going to be 25 power level. Now, this is getting into like the really niche rules, but this is how it's based off, or this is how it starts, essentially. So you build, you build a big roster. You choose units from that roster to play your opponent to the specified power level that, you're, that you choose. It's kind of got some like RPG light-ish elements to it, as far as like like games like Necromunda and and Mordenheim kind of have the same feel in right, a lot of yeah. ways. And 
the reason that they have you build a roster, and uh, there's actually a lot of bookkeeping in Crusade, which in a sense kind of like, eh, I don't really, I'm not playing the game. Like from a D&D aspect, like when you're building a character in D&D, you're keeping track of all these little things. Now think of that times 20, times 30, times 40, however many units you have on your roster. And that's kind of like a little overwhelming in the sense of like, oh shit, man, I got to keep track of every little thing these guys do. And in that sense, it does suck, but it would behoove you to actually give it a try because that's almost the, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the nice, uh, what, what's the feel-good hormone? or uh, Serotonin. Yeah, it's almost like that serotonin-like dump that you get at the end of the battle when you're doing the bookkeeping. You're like, oh, this unit killed like three other units. He's leveled up. Now I can fucking upgrade him. Now he's a badass. Like, it's it's almost that nice, like, oh, you know, it's um when you're playing a video game and you're leveling up your character, you get that same kind of sense of, oh, now these guys are badass. But not only do you get that serotonin dump, but you also get it from the fact that they did a badass, a badass event occurred on the battlefield where you're like, oh my God, like these guys have a little more personality now. Like, or right. maybe they got their ship pushed in and now they have a scar, which is another little rule that they added to this crusade deal, where if the unit dies, they actually gain a negative ability. One in six chance. Exactly. Yeah. And as this, as it progresses, you get all these, all this personal, all these little personal, like little tidbits and cherries from, from that battle. So as you progress, your units either get, you know, not worse, but they get more and more badass, or they could get hurt. And there's ways to obviously, you know, fix yourself, but all these resources that you're gaining from the crusade helps you personalize your army a little bit better in the sense where you kind of feel um, a little more attached to your guys. So yeah. I know in, in a corny sense that, like, uh, you know, it's a little, a little corny. Like, you get, to, you get to feel a little more personal with your people. But at the same time, you know, it's not for everyone. But I do recommend it. It is nice to have a little more personal, personalization with your guys. Like, for example, when Tom and I had first started a crusade together, Tom's Fire Warriors, which, I mean, Fire Warriors, right? Like, not, not really the, the best dudes, right? But uh, his Fire Warriors, or I believe they were Pathfinders, which are even worse, or actually were worse at the time, uh, one of his Pathfinders had a railgun. It was his last guy. I wiped out the rest of his Pathfinders. His path, the last Pathfinder he had left had a railgun. That railgun took out my captain, and that little railgun, what Tom actually did at the end of that battle, he upgraded that unit and that specific uh, railgun's the railgun for that Pathfinder and upgraded that railgun. So now that Pathfinder has a badass railgun because of what happened on the battle. And in that sense, it personalizes your army a little bit more. You can give that guy a name. Like it's just right. kind of a, a cool interaction that you wouldn't normally get in a normal game of 40 K. You'd be yeah. like, ah, railgun Pathfinder, whatever. I'm not going to try and save that guy. Like, you know, whatever, let him die to morale or whatever. But in this sense, like, you know, I pay the two CP, this railgun survives he pops a captain in the head, and now he's dead eye. Like, <laughs> nice. In that sense, like it's a little more personal. Oh yeah. Even in the most um, competitive players, manager at my game store, he is like grindy, spike to a T tournament player type guy. He is fondly talked about when he had to breach through terrain to make a charge. He kept rolling one after one after one 
for his blood angels and he said i am emotionally too damaged right now to continue this game you win because he has played with those models since the beginning of time right so like they have that growth for him yeah or you can actually have some knuckles behind it and give a mechanical value to that yeah or, or you know, it, it tugs on your heart a little more when that unit that's been so badass fails you, and you're just like, no, why, why have you forsaken me, Sergeant Bill? Or Tom Bill. at you when he blows up your special character again. Yeah, and you're like, no, Captain Mortis, why, why? Billy! Or like how Marky claims that I have never actually killed Eisenhorn, it's just Eisenhorn clones that are clustered at the bottom of my cold star suit. <laughs> <laughs> got to pad you got to pad the the superhero landing somehow it's just much that's, <laughs> that's right that's right yeah eisenhorn's face you know can't look any worse well one of the things that happens when you get into you know when you start looking at narrative play when you start getting into this mode i guess of playing warhammer 40k you know you you might wonder why would you run a campaign and marky you already brought some of this stuff up but one of the big reasons is so you can play more games 40k campaign is an easy template to establish reoccurring play schedules and they're designed to work with several players or even player groups and they can be established on a set day of the week so that those that can make an event can join in a game and those that can't make that event just pick another spot. So, you know, say you're going to run every Wednesday or say you're going to try to run every Wednesday and then one Saturday a month. You know, sometimes I'm not going to be able to make it Sometimes Ichbard's not going to be able to make it. Sometimes Marky's not going to be able to make it. But given a long enough timeline of the campaign, say it's six weeks long, we're probably all eventually going to play each other in more than one game. It's going to give that enrichment. However, when you set out to set up these campaigns, you want to make sure that you build them so there's never a point where a player is ever excluded. So as to where you want to build it so a player can miss it, because life happens, you don't want to have it so that some trigger in the campaign, say, has all of the chaos forces being defeated. So no chaos players can play anymore. You don't want to do that because that cuts off players. You never want to put your players in a place where they can't play. Right. And uh, Crusade actually kind of has somewhat of a system that helps the players that haven't exactly been playing as much as the players. So like, for example, if you play a bunch of crusade games, you can upgrade your units like crazy to the point where like they're unstoppable and it kind of makes it a little unfair. The game kind of has something called a crusade point system where the player who has played multiple crusades uh, has a crusade point value, which right. is a, a accumulation of all the units put together and they have a crusade point value. So like if a player has 20 crusade points and then this new guy that hasn't been able to play much or the guy or not necessarily new guy, the guy that hasn't necessarily been able to play much has like one or two crusade points. And what it does is it gives you uh, an abundance of CP so that way you can essentially have somewhat of an edge over this guy that has an abundance of relics and special weapons right. and special people, special units. So it kind of gives you that, okay, here's a bunch of free CP rerolls. Here's a bunch of like, here's freedom to use your strats at will. Like it's not perfect, but it does help, which is nice. Yeah. They actually took that into consideration. It's a very potent thing. At the end of my crusade, I had my basilisk be able to have exploding sixes and reroll ones to hit and increase its strength by one. So strength 10 basilisk, reroll ones, exploding sixes, kind of dumb. 
got a lot of upgrades in the end because exponentially your stuff will get way more powerful. It definitely snowballs, getting, yeah. yeah. When I got into the end of it, playing against people, because we got to, we ended it at about 1,500 points, so we're playing 2K matches. They, the person I would go against would usually start with 18 CP after their upgrades because of all my power level stuff. It was insane, and it was funny. And it was non-tournament rules, so we didn't have to do that whole, uh, we, we, we did open war whatever, so we ignored some core rules, like the uh, 1 CP per round thing, especially yeah. for one of the missions that they had set up. They got up to maybe about twenty CP, and it was like it was—it's like that art—the art for the magic card windfall. People shoveling gold, like they just can't—they have <laughs> they no can't, idea what to do with this stuff can't, now. Can't use it. Yeah, suffering from success. It's probably worth mentioning at this point. We're gonna sprinkle in crusade stuff the entire time, but you can design a campaign that uses matched play armies. You don't have to use the crusade style when you do a campaign campaigns are like a rule a loose way to design house rules around narrative play crusade is a hard rule set to use in conjunction with campaigns 100%. Um, and i i did just just popped into my head i'm like we're because we're going to keep talking about crusade stuff because that's where we're going but as we're mentioning a bunch of this campaign stuff strip out as much or add as much as you want Exactly. That's the whole point of narrative yeah. Oh, yeah. play is to play the game in a way that is enjoyable for both players. It's not a tournament. It's not super sweaty. It's not yeah. competitive. It's a game to where you and honestly, Tom and Ryan and I, Kevin and I have all said this multiple times. You're playing the game in a collaborative storytelling effort. Yep. And that's exactly what narrative play is. It's not so much to like, hey, this is... I'm playing this so I can build the most broken army and list that I can. Well, in some cases, yeah, some people will do that, but you can also, yeah, it's going to happen. But in narrative play, it's not so much about win or lose. It's about telling a story and personalizing your army in in a sense that you're going to, you're just essentially going to get a little more personal with your army, right? So you're going to, when you see a unit, you see it, you see stats, right? But when you're playing narratively, when you see a unit, you're like, those guys are badass. That's Sergeant Johnson and the boys. You know, that guy is a beast. Like, he is awesome. And, and, I mean, I know people have ran into those players where, like, oh, each one of my guys has a name. Each one of my guys, this is, you know, so-and-so. This is so-and-so. Yeah, that that's not because they stayed up the night before coming up with all that stuff. That's because they've been playing with that army for a yeah, long, not always. long time. <laughs> exactly, yeah. They, Unless they're they, me, and then they came up with those names the day before. No. <laughs> the Crusade yeah. system does actually incentivize it because they were like, what's your what's their name? Yeah. Okay, well, they're, they're Assault Intercessor. So, no, line down. What unit role name are they? Oh, and you just like they want you to have a different name for them all. So, like, yeah. it it gets really repetitive trying to trying to name for swarm armies, but that in itself is just added to the list of you chose to play Horde. Yeah. Hey, yeah and I mean, this is Termi 001. This is yeah. Termi 002. <laughs> yeah, and if, if that's if that's how you want to play initially, where it's like, okay, well, I don't exactly want to give this guy a name yet. Maybe he doesn't deserve it. I want to give yeah. this guy, okay, this is unit, you know, 001. 
And until they do something badass, they're known as Unit 001. Earn a name. And then after that, it's fucking Sergeant Johnson and the boys after they smack a demon prince upside the head. So it's, again, getting more personal with your army, which at the end of the day, that's kind of what narrative play is all about. You're trying to tell a story, trying to get more personal with your army, trying to, you know, it gives you that feels good. So another another reason to jump into this campaign-style play this crusade style play and to design campaigns is that you can play around with a lot of different styles of the game. So it's important to note that older chapter approved releases, white dwarves, even old rule books have different battle zones and different deployment rule sets that you can play with and pull. And while they kind of call on some archaic rules or rules that don't exist anymore, or they don't have like objective rules because that wasn't part of the game, they do offer a very wide range of ways to play, you know, starting from Annihilation to even some of the things like moving objectives that were introduced in City Fight. And uh, even the Battle for McCraig box, which we'll talk about later, had that idea. There was a dude, there was a pilot you had to rescue. That pilot moved around. So there's definitely a lot of different things to do. In matched play, As we've mentioned in the past, the game is really designed to be as balanced as possible, which makes it a great way to learn the game and your army, and it also levels the playing field for a tournament setting. However, historically, battles are not neat, orderly, and symmetrical. Several of very, very famous battles are... Completely uh, one-sided. Yeah, completely one-sided. Or they're they're cases, they're, they're teaching cases which just show the massive differences and how a tactician might be able to change the outcome of the event. We alluded to I'm going to fill in for Kevin and Tom here on this one. A historian I follow on YouTube goes through different battles. He was talking about how there were the the Maui and I believe some other Peloponnesian islands were being invaded by the British army. And they were trying to use their artillery to basically shell shock them into surrendering. What they um, end up doing is they had their artillerists sight in on the flag, on the you know on the you know on their whole flagpole because that is where you know there would be. Right. What ended up happening was they fired for like all day, just for like hour after hour, just munitions, tilled the soil, everything. They went out to check with a with a reconnaissance group. They didn't realize that they actually moved their flagpole fifty feet ahead of everything. So where they were shooting into was just basically giving them a perfect uh, shooting ground for all this tilled soil to go charge at them. And they just sat back and watched the dirt fly. And you don't see that in you know these types of games. Right. One of the things that you could do with an asymmetrical battlefield or battle force giving a wide range of challenges as you can do something like it. And this is an actual uh, battle zone deployment that I remember the Katachan player deploys their forces at one, the Katachan player has a much smaller point value. So the Katachan player is playing with 500 points versus a force that has 2000 points, but they're com- deploying completely hidden or in deep strike. They can deep strike on top and attack in the same round And that really allows you to play around with the idea of the fact that the Catachans are ambush fighters. So if you have a 2,000-point Tyranid force, so to speak, advancing across the battlefield, and Catachan devils can just pop up behind the Gene Stealers and rip through them and then vanish again, it doesn't matter that you strategically 
outvalue them points wise because tactically they can operate differently in a different way than you can, which could be the turning point of the game. Another way to look at it is maybe there's a death watch kill team of 10 Marines that was sent in to secure or and extract a Xenos relic. They have a much smaller force that's relying on speed and tactical movement against a much, much larger standing Tau force. So in this case, the Tau player knows where the Death Watch Marines are the entire time, but the Death Watch Marines can use cover to move up, use terrain as cover to move up to get the objective, and then they just have to run back to their table edge. The Death Watch player doesn't even have to fire a shot. He just has to use his forces or use their forces to get to their objective, secure it, and get it off. Another great example that exists in a board game right off the bat that G-Dub has released in the past, five Deathwing Terminators need to secure a fallen commander and get them off a Space Hulk before they're overrun by an endless supply of gene stealers. So there's these games and deployments and scenarios that don't have to rely on, well, we both brought 2,000 points. Exactly. Yeah, I'll even add to Ryan's board game or other scenario examples to a narrative game, not even so much a crusade game, but a narrative game that uh, Tom, Chuck, Kevin, and I were playing where it was uh, endless orcs. Uh, And these endless orcs were literally endless. There was no points value for these orcs. I was right. I personally built separate detachments in a flavorful sense of, okay, the vanguard of these orcs are all vehicles. You know, you're going to have all these fast-moving vehicles and flyers, and then what comes after that? Okay, maybe it's, you know, feral Squid. orcs because or, <laughs> and squigs, exactly. And then maybe after that, you got all your foot sloggers. Maybe after that, you got all your mechanical dudes. You got your stompas, your gargantuan squigos and whatnot. And all that Kevin, Tom, and Chuck had were imperial fists and guard and knights. And, and they, they had they were fixed point values. Exactly, and where they had fixed point values. And they actually right. had different fixed point values. Where the guard had 2,000 points, the knights only had 1,000, and the imperial fist only had 500. So it's almost more of a, a in a lore sense of like, okay, there's even less space marines than there is of, you know, guard. And because yeah. of how the points values of knights, okay, you, only get, you can only bring two knights, which is a little more realistic in a sense than hey, each of you bring 2,000 points and I'm going to just throw orcs at you. On top of that, we threw on different scenarios where things that wouldn't normally deep strike were deep striking. So like I would right. have commandos deep striking into their back lines and I actually threw in a, a large Promethean. What's that? They're outflanking. Yeah, exactly, yeah. outflanking. Uh, they're going there to sabotage the artillery or, for example, I put a giant Promethean tank next to a giant wall that these commandos were essentially trying to set off. And when they set this Promethean tank off, it blew up the wall that the Imperial Fists were stationed on and killed half of the Imperial Fists, possibly. Did you then replace the wall segment with the blown up wall I made? And and in a a very lore tasty sense, I pulled that wall segment off and threw on a blasted wall with a bunch of dead uh, Imperial Fists on top of it, possibly. Allegedly. That video may or may not exist. <laughs> that video may or may not already have half its content cut because it's thirty. It, it every it's eight hours long. <laughs> it's eight hours long, huh? and four hours of that is either talking about food, Mrs. Markey's amazing rolls, 
or Kevin rolling 2,000 points of Imperial Guard shooting every turn. We're yeah, going to have a montage. A dice rolling montage. I will send like him too. Like he was preparing to do that. But yeah, these are these are the kind of games and scenarios that you can kind of bring to the table yeah. and spice up your, your 40K life. And to go with and that. And if you don't. Sorry, go ahead. And if, if, you, if you don't have um, the group or the time to be able to have set up those scenarios and play them out because that's one of the downsides or upsides is there's a law there's a large build up and put away time which usually gets turned into mandatory fuck around time if you kind of need a plug and play to see that more directly warhammer 40,000 death watch enhanced edition on steam is legitimately one of the best ways you can see a narrative thing where in theory you could never fire around it's not going to happen because you're going to get swarmed if you don't but you have objectives to take care of, and killing isn't the goal. You need to move from one side of the map to the other. Very it's, rarely will they prevent you from finishing a mission if you don't shoot something. It's very rare in actual tactical battlefields control that the the general level, the and by general level I don't mean like like I mean generals, like guys that wear like medals on their chests. Their goals and the things that they're making their armies do have a lot more to do with battlefield control points. It's one of the reasons that a lot of the tactical, you know, early first-person shooters, the entire PvP aspect was death matches. They were these big arenas, and everything was based on annihilation and kill count. And then everything changed with the Call of Duty era stuff and the Battlefield era stuff where you got Definitely. control point missions and you got, like, and that's actually how war, even in ancient times, worked. It was a lot about controlling an area or denying an area to the enemy. It wasn't necessarily about, hey, can you mow down, can you annihilate the entire other side? To go along with the idea of doing like these endless games or doing these tight games, you can also vary your board size. And this is important because there is a recommended play size. It's a recommendation. If you want to have 500 points take on 500 points on a giant board, play around with that idea. If you want to have 500 points take on 500 points on a two-foot by two-foot play field, play around with that. There's nothing that says that you can't vary your play size, and there's nothing that says that over the course of a campaign you can't vary your play size. Another thing that you can mix in, and, and I know this is something that we've talked about in the past, you can mix in Battlefleet Gothic or games like Battlefleet Gothic. You can have a game start with fleet-based action and then move into Kill Team where, you know, you've got a bunch of Space Marines boarding another ship and then maybe end up as a full-force 40K slugfest on a battlefield somewhere on a planet. There's nothing that says in a campaign or in a narrative scenario that you need to always return to that same board size and always return to that same point total. Or even that same uh, rule set. Yeah, exactly. Campaigns are also a good way to make games matter. And we've already kind of mentioned this, so uh, I'm just going to briefly kind of go over my notes here. Outside of playing in a tournament, games have a tendency to feel a lot like practice. In fact, we even use terminology nowadays that kind of reinforces that. I realize that when everybody says reps. bat reps, they mean battle reports. However, a bat rep is also a repetition. As Marky just said, it's a rep. 
You're going through the motions. You're learning your army. You're, you're figuring out how it works. You're practicing for a tournament setting. Well, a campaign can help break that cycle. It's no longer a practice session for the real game. Now it is the real game. Now the story is coming into it. Now you're utilizing the repetitions and the practice that you've done in the past because the consequences of a campaign or a crusade have real outcomes and real effects as the campaign or the crusade move forward. And lastly, cooperative storytelling, which we've hit a couple of times and I don't necessarily think we need to go over again, but it's a very big thing to the podcast. And it's really, at the end of the day, what kind of just happens the more you play Warhammer 40K. Ick, you had mentioned earlier that you've got a very competitive player in your local scene who's, uh, I believe you said, I, I don't know if he's the owner but he's kind of up there in your LGS and he, he's up there in the LGS. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a competitive player, but he has like this ongoing story anyway. Like there's this ongoing sense and feel of things that have happened. So even though he might be focused on I'm ultra competitive, he still has this backstory and you can see it with other competitive players. Some of the competitive players that I really enjoy and consume their content, they've got, little nicknames and they've got little anecdotes and little stories to past games that like that's that cooperative storytelling element just sort of slowly weaseling its way in and growing little by little with each game yeah and i'm sure like as you play games with individuals even through tournaments through leagues and you're like oh man that's a really badass painted model like your captain looks dope and he's like thanks this is captain such and such i gave him this you know sword because this one time he killed a hive tyrant single-handedly so ever since then i kind of threw like a little you know a tyranid head on his ass or i you know swapped his power sword with the bone sword it's like you know little things like that that you kind of get a little bit of taste of that oh that's a really cool experience me personally i don't speak for everyone but it's like oh man i'd love to have that you know, that feeling with my models. A thing that I, um, I do, and I brought it up the first time I was um, on, and I'll bring it up again because it's a great story and it's very relevant. I got to play a 5,000-point game, 40K. We didn't whip out any of APOC rules. Just 5,000 points of 8th edition Tau Codex versus 8th edition Guard Codex. Okay. I, 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 depending on the second army you listed there, I'm like, this was either a really short fight or no, it was a real long fight. It was a real long fight. <laughs> he said guard. I'm like, oh, flashlights versus flashlights. Got it. <laughs> I had four detachments because Onslaught lets you run four detachments because we were running the we were running the, the match play rules, but we weren't running a match play mission. We had a simple right. deployment zone, simple mission, headhunter, keep it simple, points don't matter, it's whose line. So, and as we're playing middle of turn two, I f shoot every tank commander and every Lehman Russ I have, period, at this ghost kill that's blocking an objective. No lie, 40 four-up invulnerable saves consecutively made for that ghost kill. Then I pointed the hellhammer at it. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was saying that's a badass ghost kill. Jesus. Exactly. Then I pointed my hellhammer at it, and then A10 warthogged it with Stank Tank McGillicuddy. But that was most of my forces shot on one unit. You see yeah. why I lost that game. I took <laughs> off I took off the little turret uh, mount cover on my Lehman Russ, and I handed him, go, put this on your ghost skill. He deserves a promotion. He goes, ghost skills don't upgrade. I go, no, no, no. This is his This is his little reward, his, his little thing. Oh, I yeah, have I guard things already. I go, no. 
It's just my guard thing. Put it on, <laughs> I'm put giving it on your it. guy. You're giving it to And you. I did something similar with uh, with Ryan. My uh yep. my scions I was running at the time were my very poorly crafted FDM um squats that are kind of like these weird clockwork kind of like cog almost mercenary looking guys. Mm-hmm. There he is. Look at that ugly bastard. <laughs> and there's also the squat. He couldn't hear me. He no, I could hear oh, you. Fuck, he's going. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I was like, the headphone wire doesn't go that long. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. You can get like halfway to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I call that a shit post. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you know, ba- based on, I don't know what I was going to say. Never mind. I have that effect on men and women. <laughs> we've now talked about campaigns maybe you've got a little bit of a bug to build it and we're gonna we're gonna lay out some of the rules that campaigns follow or some of the ways you can build campaigns before we talk about when we're gonna come back next episode we're gonna talk about some of our favorites and share some of our past experiences and then we're gonna actually do a brainstorming session we're gonna talk about the crusade that we want to the campaign the crusade that we want to design for use at our studio and for hopefully use throughout our discord let's talk really quickly about the types of campaigns so the first type of campaign is called a narrative campaign these are linear stories and they have very very linear arcs so they're the most common to be released by games workshop in fact we're going to talk about some worldwide campaigns right at the end of this episode all of those were narrative campaigns or at least narrative light campaigns Players receive bonuses for the next game for winning, and there is normally a set number of games. This is generally a good choice if you're looking at doing your first campaign and you have a smaller player count because you can really focus on those 1v1 or those duo battle zones and deployment games. There's also a lot of... books are a perfect example of that as well. They are one for one, exactly that. Yeah, there, there is a huge amount of official support for this style campaign. Um, there are rules in past publications. I mentioned earlier, chapter approved. The new chapter approves. The war zones that are coming out now. The every rule books themselves. Box. Yeah, Battle Force boxes. Every, no, seriously, I don't, no one's ever talked about it. Every Battle Force box where you get your Grey Knights and Thousand Sons, your sisters versus, you know, yeah. kinky elves, there is a book in the back of it. And it shows like three different missions to play, and they're all these scenarios. And, and you, you play just them, pull it in, and one after the world other. right there, yeah. plug and play right there. It's beautiful. People don't talk about it enough. Yeah. So while a lot of the specific rules might change, say you're going to go out and you're going to look for some of these old publications, or you've got a, a friend who has an old stack of white dwarfs, some of the specifics may have changed. Overall, the way that the game is played with these old deployments and these old battle zones, just strip out the stuff you're not going to use. Or, shit, go wild. The deployment doesn't have CP in it because it's from an older edition. Play that game without CP. You know, it it can be what or what you don't want. Um, The downside, the con to this, as I mentioned right up top, these are fixed stories, so there is an outcome, and the outcome's already kind of foretold. You know, that the chaos is going to win, or the ultramarines are going to win or whatever however that's not necessarily something where like just because the tyranids are going to win and the ultramarines are going to lose it doesn't mean that those little moments of heroism throughout the campaign don't have value it just becomes a little bit more about those little moments those little vignettes than the entire 
scenario. Yeah, and that's always a really big thing to drive home, especially with kind of how the community has moved into more of the competitive scene, I want to say. Like a, a very large percentage of the community, they're they're looking to win games, right? They're being pushed into, uh, the, the rule support suggests play tournaments, so you have exactly. a lot of people going that way. Yeah, yeah and it's also the most, the most balanced support. way to play yeah. a game, which is 100%. obviously a little more... Uh, it's a little you more user-friendly. Exactly. That's Winnie the Hut Juniors. <laughs> yeah, that was the He way. was looking for Winnie Hut Juniors. Not user-friendly. Y'all heard we, it here. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> so the next type of campaign that we wanted to, to lay out are called tree campaigns or branching narratives. As the name suggests, really similar to a narrative campaign, there's just a tree or a branching structure based off of it. So... If the Xenos player wins, instead of going deployment A, deployment battle zone one to battle zone two, you're going to go from deployment A to a potential of A, B, or C is going to be your next step. Right. The think about will... it. Oh, yeah. Okay, I was going to say, think about it a lot like how a video game can have a bad a video game. It's, there's a bad end. There's the good ending. There's the bad ending. There's the secret ending. What light do you want the energy yeah, that right. wipes out the Reapers? <laughs> How can we? How can we all like, be uh, mad at Bioware? Got it. Got it. <laughs> just, just hijack the podcast, Mass Effect. No, no, like, I got gotcha. you. No, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me let me throw it at a different game. Let me throw out a different game franchise for you. Do what <laughs> Telltale pretends they no. do. Oh Ouch. shit! Or did? Yeah, they went underground. The shots fired, <laughs> like little. <laughs> In this case, you Dude. may have like an Imperium victory. A chaos victory and a and a and a Xerox and a Xenos victory conclusion to your narrative. Uh, Mark, you had an input here. I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean to. No, 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 no. You, uh, I didn't want to interrupt your your flow, but yeah, kind of to add to what Ryan was saying. Not even so much as an ending outcome, but essentially think about it almost like uh, Imperial Guard forces are fighting the orcs. If the Imperial Guard win. The orcs are now on the defensive and the battle zone changes from, you know, the Imperial Bastion to now a wasteland. Or right. on the other hand, where the orcs win, now the orcs are in the Bastion and the troops are now pushed into their supply lines. And it can it, it can sway either way depending on, you know, the outcome of the battle. And it's not so much a good thing or a bad thing if you win or lose, but it changes the narrative which is kind of, it's a cool way to interact with the game. For those of you who watched, or for, for those of you who were lucky enough to have caught them on Twitch, unfortunately, I didn't quite understand how Twitch batch saved videos, and I screwed up. But we did do, right before I moved to Iowa, actually, we did do a narrative campaign where Marky and I, or we had all sat down and decided the Tyranids are going to win. The Gene Stealers and Tyranids are going to win. But we ran three games, very much exactly mixed, pretty much exactly what Marky just said, which, which makes sense. We just didn't have a lot of time to build it into a branch narrative, but we had restrictions. So if Marky and I, the duo team as Gene Steeler, Cult, and Tyranids lost, we started on a different part of the battlefield. If we won, we started on a different part of the battlefield. So we kind of did a, like a hybrid between a standard narrative and a branching. And that's important. As we introduce all of these different things, don't think you have to do a branching narrative and you can't work in escalation. That you can totally work in escalation. Don't think that you have to use any one of these alone. 
Um, speaking of escalation campaigns, that's the next one we're going to talk about. These are probably arguably the oldest campaigns that exists as they're the structurally easy, easiest to arrange. As Marky mentioned, really, really good way to mimic how a new player gets into the game. You're going to buy that start collecting box. You're going to play that first escalation and then you're going to go, oh, well, well, hey, one of the other guys in the escalation also has Death Watch and he has some Terminators. I don't have any Terminators. I'm going to mix some Terminators in next time. They generally start at 500 points. They generally go all the way up to 2,000 points. Some of them go a little bit higher. Point totals increase every two to three weeks. They're usually six to eight weeks long. I will say that this structure does suffer from a lack of narrative arc. There isn't gonna, There isn't a really easy way for an LGS or an RTT or a TO to set up an escalation league. That's a, one of the reasons we call them escalation leagues and escalation campaigns. There's not really an easy way to link it. So it puts a lot more focus on the players coming up with narrative or everything coming down to that like vignette. This battle is narratively important, but in the escalation campaign, it's not. That's not to say that you can't tweak it to do it. One of the escalation, I'll go into depth next episode when we get into some of our favorites, but one of the ones that I played, there actually was a, the escalation didn't happen until certain objectives had been achieved, which is a way to do it, which is really cool. I'll talk about that in depth next episode. These can also suffer from balance issues. And the reason they can suffer from balance issues is because there can be a very, very big difference between 500 points of Tau Fire Warriors and 500 points of Terminators. That's another downfall. No such thing. <laughs> That's false. Equally, equal points equals equal points. Shut up. <laughs> the math is not wrong. These are also most easily played with 1v1 or doubles. So you're not... You're not going to get, and the next one that we're going to talk about is the same way. There's a couple of these that are a little bit restrictive to the idea of like asymmetrical game or a 3v3 or a six-player free-for-all. You're not going to really be able to do it with some of these setups and escalations is one of those. You can do, you totally can. It's a little bit harder to organize. You guys have any input on you? Anything to add to escalation campaigns? We ran, when we ran a crusade Thanksgiving before last at our game store, we did 1,000 points to 1,500 points, translated the power level because no one understands power level unless you're doing your strategic reserves, and kind of just astroturfed it where we gave the requisition points to fill up that roster as you went. And it caused some interesting play-by-play, -play, I would say, between games one and three, because when you have 1,000 points of guard who's building for the future of 1,500 points, you're going you're gonna to yeah. get your corn creamed. If you're playing, if you're playing Blood Angels, story. you really don't want to get to that 1,500 point yet. You're in that sweet zone, that incursion map, that definitely scaled properly yeah. map for 9th edition before they fixed it. Yeah, Kevin and yeah. I actually had a similar experience with my Death Watch and his Imperial Guard, where we were having a 500 point game or a 25 power level game. And it's really hard for 500 points of guard to peel off 500 points of Space Marines. It's just, it's hard, especially when like half of that goes into a tank. Exactly. Yeah. Like Ick yeah. was saying, when you're building for a future list where you're like, oh, well, I need a lot of bodies initially, right? Because I need objectives and I need you know, placeholders for different areas because I'm building towards that huge tank list or a huge, you know, 
half and half infantry and tank list. And like it just said, half of those points go into a tank commander, which it's not hard to, to duck away from a tank commander. You just hide behind little, you know, little ruins over and over again until you bad touch them. And then once you bad touch yeah. that, that tank commander, it's kind of like the, the guard player is just kind of like, well, I didn't get to do anything this entire match. And unfortunately that does happen when you're playing these games. And, um, Dave from mini war gaming, I love the guy said a very, a very inspiring thing, which is don't do what the most tactical thing you can do at the time is do what that unit would do. Would that unit, would that unit of corn berserkers go take cover if they're in the face of a tank commander, or are they going to go charge that bitch and take them the fuck out? And maybe, you know, a friend or two dies on the way there. Maybe they all die on the way there. Maybe you do get to bad touch that tank commander, but you know what? It's going to be fucking awesome either way. Exactly. Another Rock thing attack. to keep in mind, and, and Marky and Ink, you both touched it in your stories. When you're designing campaigns, keep in mind some of these pitfalls. You know, don't set the 500 point escalation matches to be annihilations, set them to have an objective. So maybe the objective is to rescue the Lorax from the middle of the map or whatever. You can do these things. He speaks for the trees. He does he speak for, for the, the trees. trees. And they, and, y'all y'all and are making eyes at each other and I'm trying to maintain eye contact with the camera <laughs> and I'm watching like eyebrows out of the corner of my eye. It made me, I'm doing the way with my eyebrows. It's amazing. You should pay. pay <laughs> it made me think of the Lorax. But anyway, you, you can set these other. I speak for the trees. Set, they say shut the fuck <laughs> up. You can set these other expectations, these other wind conditions, other than just fucking annihilation. Go murk each other. Yeah. yeah. The next campaign to bring up is called a Matrix campaign. These are another kind of narrative light option which can make it good for first timers and those of you who are looking at designing your first campaign as well as making it a good choice for a large player base if you've got a lot of players uh, matrix campaigns work really well this is also a restrictive play style as the mission matrix you design is best when there are only two choices that are made so a matrix is not just a movie with keanu in it a matrix is Bless an excel spreadsheet is a matrix <laughs> A matrix is two sets of data points that can be cross-referenced with one another. So if you guys are familiar with the old hit and wound charts from earlier editions of Warhammer 40k, those charts are all matrixes. If I roll a four and your toughness is a four, I'm going to, I missed or, oh, I hit or whatever. Yeah, if my weapon skill is seven and your weapon skill is nine, then I need a five to hit you. Right, right. I'm pretty sure that's not the way it was, but uh, there was weapon skill nine, and there was initiative. (laughs) Yeah, the old school weapon skill to weapon skill was kind of gnarly. So even if you do end up doing a Matrix campaign as duos, say you want to do a duos Matrix campaign, generally speaking, you're going to have one warlord. So one of your players is going to be the person making the decision. Then you're going to set the number of options that you're going to use in your matrix on both axes. So advance, hold, recon, flank, and reinforce are the examples that I pulled out of a matrix campaign in, I believe, the 5th edition codex. May have been the 6th edition. Not uh, codex, rulebook. It was in one of them. Um, Don't quote me, but it's in one of them. (laughs) So basically, Warlord A picks reinforce 
Warlord A picks recon, or Warlord B picks recon. You then cross-reference, and that'll tell you, okay, you're playing battle zone or deployment headhunter. And then you go to that page, you pull that up, and you work through that. Now, I'm not saying that you have to use those five options. That's just the example that exists in one of the books that you could go look up. You could make your matrix as big or as small as you want. Maybe you only have three options. Maybe you have 10 options. You can also pull from existing GW publications, existing rule books, all sorts of old deployments and battle zones and fit them into your matrix. And it's like playing bingo. You can come up with whatever two requirements you want to lead into what you're doing. And then these are our foundations, right? These are foundations to build off of just because... Right. It's there. It doesn't mean you have to use it. You can build your own foundation, but they are an already there foundation for you to use to benefit from because these things are already planned out and you can build off of it and have something to build off of. These are the most common campaigns, right? There's all sorts of stuff that you could, I mean, there, there's all, you, you could, you could do a completely narrative one or you could do a branching narrative that uses a matrix or you could come up like Mark said with whatever the hell you want to do. <laughs> exactly. So like escalation, this structure doesn't have or imply a lot of narrative to it. So it's more work to link it all in. Like I said, it's kind of that narrative light. You may also need to use the narrative to give players a reward for not choosing the attack option all the time though. So there comes some balance. This is a good type of campaign for big, big groups of people. If you've got a lot of people playing, say you've got a pod of six tables, you can print up, you know, whatever you need. Say, say you've got six of these pods, you print up six matrixes, you pass them out to the TO that's at each table pod, and then you let the tables figure their stuff out. What were you going to say, Ick? I have a bone to pick with you about lack of narrative structure. I disagree with you vehemently. Vehemently, sir. With a, with a capital... <laughs> So, when it comes to the narrative stuff, this is me pulling my roots from a D&D &D player. A lot of the times, you'll have mechanics that you go, but my character wouldn't do that without being the that guy stereotype. And uh, a, a school of thought for it is, justify, justify the story around the mechanic. You failed that saving throw. You failed your leadership test. Your sniper missed. What's the lore to justify it? Why are you working with Jukari after the other Jukari literally just stole half your platoon? Your sex butt stuff. And then that gives you enough... Listen, man, we, that's part two. Okay? So I think more of what I mean, and maybe I said it wrong, there is a mechanic down way to design a campaign, and there is a narrative down way to design a campaign. So a Matrix campaign is a mechanic. There isn't an escalation and a matrix, there is no narrative in the mechanic. As to where a narrative and a narrative branching, narrative is needed in order for the campaign to exist, if that makes any sense. It's starting with the story or starting with the mechanics. It does. I, you're, you're talking about form. I was, I was thinking about the actual life playthrough. 100%. You're absolutely right. Every single one of these, you can put narrative into, and you should, in my opinion, Put narrative into them. You should do exactly what it is saying. You should use the mechanics. How did you put it? You use the mechanics to justify the narrative? You justify the lore with the results of the mechanics. Thank you. <laughs> it's very well put. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I believe in the Discord today we actually had someone ask, in what way, shape, or form would a Tyranid High Fleet fight another, another Tyranid, Tyranid High, Fleet? High Fleet? And yep. this is a perfect example of adding that lore to the mechanics of the game of where maybe you do have two Tyranid players that face off one another, and why would they fight each other? It's it's so funny because like it is the simplest answer for why a faction would fight itself, but it is also the like most psychologically damaging <laughs> i guess you got the layers you got to explain why yeah. does everyone right. why are they working together but immediately get stabbed yeah. over here and we're not reading game of thrones right a perfect example for the lore just as a, a very quick aside yeah there was a card game called legend of the five rings and they had this big story yep you know what i'm talking about people would play their games against each other and they have these. i do factions. not have the source book on my shelf anymore but i used to have the rpg source book you would write down your result of the card game like and you would mail it in and then they would write it up as this is what your faction got from their report and this is what your faction got and then they had this giant final tournament yeah Colin, are you like right on the nose? Or are you like the, call, Are you? Are no, you no. The it? next, the next point's right on the nose. The next campaign style is right on the nose. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. Shit. <laughs> keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Segway, baby. Springy soft oh, yeah. Woo! Chimpanzee riding on the segway. That's a two thousands reference. But Legends of the Five Rings. They had uh, this giant tournament at the end, and they had the two only Naga players who were able to make it there fight each other, and they said. What? We're friends. We're not going to fight each other. And they wrote it as, while they couldn't ascertain any form of victory, they won basically the long war by holding all their troops in the back in this mysterious new future. Yeah. And it's that thing where you can just layer it on perfectly. And so that, that leads perfectly into mass campaigns, also known as official campaigns. And this is where we're going to bring in... Great segue because we're going to bring in a little bit of non 40k to this. Massive campaigns or official campaigns or living campaigns are things that exist across a lot of different disciplines of gaming. A very, very good example is Living Greyhawk in the Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. That there is an organization that you can join as a player, and then your players' actions are registered with your DM and then are registered with the national database. And that national database determines how the storyline changes. Absolutely the same thing happens in mass campaigns. And we're going to talk about mass campaigns and official campaigns towards the end of the episode because there's a, there's a couple of really famous ones. But these are used by either local groups or na national groups or worldwide groups like GW and the results that all of the players take and all of their independent games inform the narrative of the future in this case of the games workshop release or even changes the way that future editions might have their lore these are possibly most easily seen as the publicized narratives we'll, we'll talk about and the Warzone structures that GW has started to use recently, the Warzone, Noctum, and stuff like that. Also, Psychic Awakening was, you know, there was no mass campaign associated with it, but Psychic Awakening was, it was a soft launch. kind of a soft mass campaign, yeah. Most of the times, yeah. you're going to play in one of these and not design or run them, but there is no reason you can't design and run one. And in fact... 
as we move forward with the designing component of what we're going to do, there's definitely going to be the Crusade Studio stuff. I would like to, guys, work on a Discord community mass campaign. So we're going to set some campaign rules, and then those players who are in our Discord community who are all over the United States and officially Canada. Europe. <laughs> we have got a couple of people from Europe. Canada, Europe. Can, yeah. Can get involved. Canada isn't real. Shut <laughs> up, Mark. Quit making fetch a thing. They they keep telling me that it's a real place. They can get in. Shut the <laughs> fuck up. I don't even up. know where it is. Bagged Almost. milk. America's I hat. I slap the syrup off I your couldn't beard. even point it at a map. Oh, my God, guys. Um, I will make it so you never apologize again. You talk about Canada. It's not real. Hi, Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be great to use mass campaigns and statistical averages to kind of build out some of the lore of the Carcosan or surrounding sectors. You can find a lot of stuff about mass campaigns and official supplements. Very, very famous supplements that we'll talk about later are the Eye of Terror book and the Fall of Medusa 5. And even though those are concluded, there's nothing to stop you from going back and playing out a what if. In fact, arguably, the Horus Heresy set, rule set, the 30k rule set, is a mass campaign that is a what if. Because we already know the conclusion of that lore story, but there are a lot of people who play out things and then we get these cool sub-narratives, these cool what-if scenarios, like the Dornian heresy, for instance, where Dorn fell instead of Horus. And there's a whole... Like smut? There's... There, <laughs> yes. <laughs> there are... Don't, don't Google it. Novels. That's just the color of uh, Dorn's Oh, my armor. God. There are <laughs> novels of information written about the Dornian heresy. There's a lot of what-if out there. Plus, I mean, come on. Didn't Marvel or Disney Plus just do an entire what if series? What ifs yep. are, are big. People love what ifs. What ifs are amazing, but the Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe is probably their most successful what if. Yeah, that was dope. IDW did a, I think it's called Infestation. It came out before and, and like right before the Marvel Zombies thing happened, but basically the zombie virus oh, nice. crosses over between the Transformers universe the Ninja Turtles universe, the G.I. Joe universe, and the Star Trek universe. And all of those universes like Sounds bleed like into each other and like mess with each other. It's it's an interesting comic series run. That's but dope. anyway, it's totally a what if. So I have a friend, Moppet. He's been eyeing the Horus Heresy 2 rules. And he wants to do his big what if. Because it's just amazing. And you have several friends who are interested in it. And the way I sold him a way uh, to like get everyone into it is there's only two people who know who are actually traitor, who are actually loyalist before Istan. Oh, nice. Okay. You have the guy running it and your war master, who everyone knows is like turning naughty. Right. And it's at that point, only when people are actually brought down onto Istan 5 as the opening of this giant what if campaign is where people know where the lines are actually drawn, and everyone's already paranoid, and they haven't even picked a legion yet. I'd be bad. I'd, it's, it's, dude, can you imagine it all? It's can the you thing. imagine it all happening like Game of Thrones style too, where like people are talking before the game works, and they're like, hey, if you side with me... <laughs> dude, and it's like legitimately, I'll he, buy you he a... said he had to redo the list three times. Yeah, that's dope. Like, whoever, he doesn't know who's going to be what, but he's like, no, that... That is too powerful here. Let's 
roll the dice until we get something kind of in the middle and he has it and he's already he's already trying to tease us with like combos without telling oh, yeah. us anything uh, that's a, like that's just dope, to scare man. us Moppet's cool Moppet's a baller oh gosh <laughs> his home's like Detroit that's why I feel so at home with him when I'm near him aha <laughs> that, that's a joke that he'll get that's a joke that he'll get don't worry like I was like he's not from Detroit <laughs> no, uh, no no it became an ongoing joke that Detroit has a better safety rating than his bedroom and I said that's why I feel so home when I sleep there. oh so I, I thought that was a Rekka Rekka Ali reference. Oh, that's a deep cut. I I was not going to reference Rekka Rekka Ali on the podcast. Real talk. That, that's, a, that's a slope that is buttered already. The last type of campaign that we're going to cover is map campaigns. These are, in my opinion, the absolute coolest. And probably what most people think of when they immediately hear, hear the word campaign. Even if you're not familiar with 40K, when you hear about campaigns, you generally think about map campaigns. Basically, this is a mix of map control games like Risk with the tabletop side of like 40K. So instead of rolling dice for an entire territory, I want to know what Russia does. I'm going to roll three dice. Okay, Russia adds three troops. You're going to play out individual battles to determine whether or not the territory stays in the hands of the controlling player. When you design or set up a map, you could be on a single planet, you could be dealing with an entire subsector, or you could be doing a mix of both of those. Generally speaking, you're going to divide your map, and oftentimes, at least in Warhammer 40k, it's divided into hexes. Another game that does this a lot Another war game that does this a lot is uh, Battle Toads. No, <laughs> they're ro- they're giant robots that shoot each other. Battle Battle Tech. Wow. Battle Toads. <laughs> battle Battle Tech do- to does me. a lot. Man, you of guys like... remember that Battle Tech level on the Game Boy that you couldn't beat? That was so insane. Shout out to yes. Game Boy. Shut up. <laughs> so based on how games go, territory can be lost or gained. That's kind of how a map campaign works. Territories can be revealed or discovered. So you might have blank territories, territories that have no information until their side is touched. And the possibilities with this stuff is pretty much limitless. These have the most real feel when it comes to the way that like a historical or real world war games are run, giving players the roles of field commanders or even generals in the defense and conquest of territory. And one of the reasons for that is because a lot of strategic decisions can be made off camera not off camera um in downtime game yeah yeah so you're making strategic decisions you know you might have 10 tau players and the person who's making a lot of the strategic calls for the tau might have a certain number of uses of like free deep strikes and when i say deep strike i don't mean on a game board i mean onto a hex and they might use that free deep strike on an unexplored hex because they think there might be something there there could also be high value hexes mixed in maybe there's a military installation or a secret relic or something and say the orc players have a certain number of rocks and they know where one of these military installations is so since they're worried that the black templars might be able to get to that installation first and therefore reinforce in the map campaign the orc players decide they're going to drop a a rock on the installation to try to take it first. There ends up being these different things that you can do. Orbital bombardment. Two CP. Yeah. 
these take the most work. They're going to generate the most art. They're going to have a lot of components to them, but there's a lot of really cool stuff you can do here. From as easy as simple as using, as I already mentioned, a risk board, you just use a risk board as your campaign map. Or you could use a Settlers of Catan box set because it's already got hexes. You could do different things. But with the advent of 3D printing and systems that exist like Hextile, you can print out hive cities on little hexes and you can build this giant hex map. And then you can even do things like you can paint it differently so that the Tau player might have 20 hexes that have their colors on them. The Space Marine might have theirs, theirs. Or you might have little slots in your hexes that allow you to put a flag for the territory that holds it. That's another thing. Maybe you're using a risk board. Use sticky notes to mark down who holds what. Maybe you're doing the Settlers of Catan. Use the tiles that exist in the game to mark out who's controlling what. Maybe you 3D printed. Like I just said, you can either color your hex tiles differently or use flags, spaceships, any little gizmo you want to. Other thing that you can do here, and the thing that's happened in the past, and I'll bring up a use scenario I did, but as a use scenario with a global campaign that GW ran not too long ago, The Fate of Connor, you can make a web portal which has interactive maps that change as statistics and averages are updated. So you could use something like Photoshop and do overlays. The use case that I did was when I used to run GamerCon in San Diego, we had 20 games that were registered as part of a campaign setting, part of a map campaign setting. In this particular case, those 20 games were from multiple, multiple disciplines. We had everything from Monopoly to Fortnite. We had chosen 20 games that people could competitively play in through the length of the convention. And then based on the statistical information that we got from their games, they picked a faction. So we had six factions that were controlling for the six realms, which is what we called our map campaign. So if the orc players, the people who registered themselves when they bought their tickets as orc players, won statistically a certain number of games or achieved a specific objective, because one of the games was a scavenger hunt, you had to find things that we had hidden in the convention, when they had gotten those things and recorded that information with us, it went into an analytics statistics engine, which then allowed us to reveal how much territory they conquered. And as their factions conquered and grew territory, those hexes started to interact with each other. And then it became a, well, if you can overwhelm the next hex, which means you get enough points not only to buy the empty hex, but to buy off the person who already had the hex, you basically, your army has to defeat, you know, the elves and the orcs touch each other. The elves have to defeat the orcs and then they have to occupy. There started being little changes. And we did all of this with an online map the same way. There are a lot of GW publications for this. City Fight has the Vogon map. There's the McCraig stuff. There's the Medusa 5 stuff. There's also campaign maps that have been talked about in Old White Dwarfs. If you can find any of these old resources, any of these old things that we've talked about or will talk about, there is just a wealth of stuff in there. Additionally, on a um, if you already own it, Civilization 5, Civilization 6, perfect place to set up that hex map. Oh, yeah, 100%. You can have 
in six in, in Civ Six, almost said sex. We don't do that. This is Warhammer. You can have two view modes. You have your beauty, beautiful, artsy fartsy, see all the units, see the builders making the railroad and get black lung, and then you have your resource <laughs> panel. And Dad, it'll show, I've got black lung. I can't <laughs> turn left. <laughs> what is this? What is this an army crawled for ants? But but he's a merman, pop. Merman. But why male models? (laughs) So, so, and you go into Civ 6. Ryan, you're so unprofessional laughing in the middle of a podcast while we're talking about orange mocha frappuccinos. (laughs) I just see Marky go back. He's like, fuck. He's tripling. All right, so you can you can use you can use Civ Six. <laughs> yeah, so Civ Six, you have a resource panel. You have the you have the hexes there, and yeah. you can just take a snapshot if you just want to create an island or a map, or if you have some kind of mod where you can literally just click, click, uh, pick and play. Only downside yeah. is you need to have everyone online at the same time to update it, or just have a master file from someone else to do it because that's that's someone else's hobby right there. Yeah, also there, there for are guys simulator as well. There are guys like me who spend a lot of time making maps for D&D games in programs like Photoshop who will totally lay a hex grid over it and then take the statistical information you give them, plug it in, and update a static image on a website. There, it can be as complicated or as uncomplicated as you want it to be. Another, another thing that your example brought up in my mind, though, is if you want a really good example of what a map campaign looks like and functions like, Obviously, you're going to be doing it analog rather than digitally, but the Total War games and the Civ games 100% capture what we're talking about. You're dealing with territories, and then when the territory is contested, you go into a battle. A great thing that I'm noticing parallels going through this entire thing is if anyone has ever prepared a D&D campaign, oh, yeah, this 100%. is your wheelhouse. The second you said, oh, a map campaign, go... That's a hex crawl, but like real time. There's a bar. There's a several bars in the San Diego microbrew crawl area that were doing a D&D hex map. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, a D&D map campaign where the bars that were part of it had a hex map up in the bar. And then the actions that the games that were run at the microbreweries took updated the map. And one guy, and I, I shit you not, was he handmade each of the maps, you know, like like the old school way where, you know, they weren't mass produced. He he hand copied them appropriately. So they were almost one to one on like like paper bags that you get at the grocery store. So they had this old rustic look and then they would be hand updated every I think every other but it was biweekly. So it was twice a month. It was super dope. It was very, very cool that they did it. But like this stuff, it's it's cool. It's fun. It adds a level of immersion to what you're doing. I'll look it up and throw it in the show notes. But there's a really cool 3D modeler STL guy, I think on like my mini forge who makes like cyberpunk and like wasteland style hex tiles that you can uh, print out that are really, really, really cool for for yeah. things exactly like this. I'm I'm all about immersion, man, and hearing something like a 3D printable hex tile that you can slap up on like a whiteboard or something with like magnets behind it. Oh yeah, you like spray paint like each one for like each faction or something, or it, yeah, it just sounds super immersive and cool. I love that. 
And it can be that simple. You can get like six cans of rattle color and just spray them all differently. Or you can make it complicated. You can you can give each commander of, you know, each chunk of campaign. All right, it's your job. You've got 10 orc players. Here's your 10 orc tiles. Everybody, they all need to be painted. It's a community thing. Yeah. Let's get into the history of crusades and campaigns. So G-Dub in their history has run a host, relatively small host, of worldwide campaign events. So the very first one was the Battle of Icar 5. This was in 1995. This was the first ever 40K worldwide campaign, and it was featured in White Dwarf articles that were released to the lead up of it starting in 1995. The campaign was set in second edition and was the soft introduction of the Tyranids. They also expanded what became Hive Fleet lore quite a bit throughout the campaign. Icar 5 is a famous hive world in the Ultima Segmentum, and it is of vital importance to the industrial and military strength of the realms of Ultramar. There are a few sources of the free PDFs of the original campaign rules that are pretty easy to find. Just Google Icar 5 Worldwide Campaign or Icar 5. This was very much the Feeling Out the Waters campaign. So if you can find it, the follow-up expansion in 5th edition is a little bit better. However, it wasn't attached to a worldwide campaign event. It was just kind of an update of the earlier worldwide stuff. So if you wanted to go back and and play it, capture that nostalgia, you could. Um, Since this is bound to a hive world, the campaign did did as normal use map campaign elements as it was being calculated also in 1995 the player base i said second edition player base was a little smaller (laughs) so their next big one was the armageddon worldwide campaign held in 2000 this is the reason that the armageddon third edition codex exists which came out in 2000 as part of the second worldwide campaign This covers a lot of the background and major plot points for the Third War of Armageddon, and a lot of the stuff that happened in those games informed the actual lore. You also got a bunch of introductions to new armies in this game, including the Cult of Speed, the Black Templar's Space Marine chapter, which did not exist before this book came out, the Salamander's Space Marine chapter, which also didn't exist until this this book came out, and the Armageddon Steel Legion. This book, uh, I'm sorry, Salamander. It, it it was a it was a play style for the Salamanders. It what they existed oh, before the chapter game. rules. I was going to say like chapter the rules. fuck you say yeah. <laughs> about my my Prometheum well, accessories. This is also publication year 2000. This yes. is early third edition. This can drink legally. Yes, a lot of stuff that we take for granted. 22 years ago (laughs) didn't necessarily exist yet this is a book that you can still find you can find hard copies of it on ebay you can find a couple of pdf sources but they're not really that good 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 to go back if you want to play out some what ifs good to go back if you want to play some nostalgia we also just covered armageddon and a planet spotlight and we talked a lot about this stuff so again g-dub held a worldwide campaign, they collated statistical data, and they used that statistical data to change lore. Now we are going to talk about the big 
ugly elephant in the room, which was the Eye of Terror campaign that released in 2003. I have a name. So the Eye of Terror campaign was a massive worldwide campaign. To give you guys an idea, GW was like, okay, we're expecting a 50% growth rate from Armageddon, which we had just, which we did three years ago. They got closer to do 250% increase in players. They weren't prepared for it. So the Eye of Terror campaign follows the 13th Black Crusade. And in concept, the strategy of the game narrative was used to manipulate the player results. One of the reasons, that's a really weird way of saying it. Hmm, let's re-say that. So this, this, as I mentioned, follows the 13th Black Crusade, but a lot of the narrative elements that were put into it, a lot of the plot point elements that were put into it were already kind of decided on. And then they built the rules of the gaming narrative in order to manipulate player results. All of this was cataloged through a website. Now, individual games, this is that manipulation, had such a small impact on the overall strategy and shifts of the campaign since players were able to actually negate their results. So for an example, Kevin, I play and my black Legion wins. That's a chaos victory. Marky and beast play Marky wins overthrowing beasts, chaos Knights. That's an Imperial victory. Marky and my victories cancel each other out because those games took place with a loyalist faction versus chaos faction. So there was a little bit of manipulation, and it makes sense. Like when I say manipulation, it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a saying, I believe, by Yogi Berra, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. And this is very much in the third category. 69% of statistics are made up, including the one I just quoted. Seven fives know how to do their math. <laughs> I give this movie a five out of seven. Three toilets. <laughs> Three toilets. So events played out lit up with a set of loose themes or plot points. I've said plot points a couple of different times, and maybe it's it's time to kind of mention them. So a plot point arc is when you have a story arc, but it's loosely connected with plot beats that you know are going to happen. So for instance, you might know that John Wick is going to get revenge on the killer of his dogs by the middle of the story arc, movie one. But you don't know how he's going to get there, and you don't know in what state he's going to be in by the time he gets there. So that would be a plot point. Yeah, so the campaign in this case started with a plot point of insurrections and rebellions mixed with small raids by chaos forces, and then it just ramped the fuck up until Abaddon punched the Imperium in the face. Not only is there a third edition codex and supplement for the Eye of Terror that you can still find and use for your what-if campaigns if you want, but there is a lot that happened during this game that did not make it into official lore until 2017. So the results of this game were so much that it didn't get into publication for, what, 14 years? I was about to say, like, it was 8th edition where Cadia got its back broken like Batman and, you know, Batman. Right, but all of that was... That all of that was determined by this worldwide event in 2003 that was only like 8 to 12 weeks long. So what I'm (laughs) hearing is lore gets delayed in the way they sandbag codexes. (laughs) I didn't say nothing. I did, don't worry. 
Speaking Hi. of codexes, this is the first time that the Lost and the Damned became a thing. This is the first time that the Traitor Guard really became out there as a thing that exists. The Fall of Medusa 5 was a worldwide campaign in 2006. The campaign returned to one planet template of the Armageddon, the Armageddon event, which made it a little bit more manageable. The Eye of Terror event became kind of unwieldy and so long to sort through because it was just so much territory and so many players. Medusa 5 brought it back into a specific area. They divided the planet into a bunch of different battle zones. The Fall of Medusa book was included in a 2006 White Dwarf supplement, which is how I got mine, but you are also able to buy it later on its own. It contains background information for the entire Medusa system, as well as the motivations for most of the armies that existed in 4th edition. So to give you guys an example, there is an orc section, and it explains why the orcs are on Medusa 5. There is a Tau section, section it explains why the tower on medusa five it's a little bit harder to find i do have i managed to hold on to mine ever since it was originally released but much like the eye of terror there are a lot of major themes and plot points which have made it into the current development of gw games this is another plot point one for instance the planet was gonna fall and be swallowed by a warp storm it was just could the Necrons do what they needed to do first? Could so-and-so do what they needed first, et cetera? Why don't the mechanics just get there and like throw it over there like they did with Olinor? I honestly don't... I don't think the Mechanicus existed yet in 4th edition. You know what? You know what? I think I think they were just too scared. They didn't want their planet-flinging technology to be known worldwide. To, to, to be known, right? The armies that existed at the time were Space Marines, the Tau... The Imperial Guard, Chaos Space Marines, Orcs, Eldar, Dark Eldar, Tyranids, and Necrons. A couple of factions that we're talking about aren't, don't exist. So the newest one, the most recent, was the Fate of Connor, which was in 2017. This was a worldwide campaign that kicked off with the release of 8th edition and once again focused on the realms of Ultramar, this time the Connor system. It focuses mainly on the growing conflict between the Ultramarines and the Plague Marines of the Death Guard, which made the event pair well with the Dark Imperium box set, which pits Primaris Marines against the new Death Guard sculpts. So this was the box set that had the first Primaris sculpts and the first slightly larger Chaos sculpts. That's when they had their big resize, yeah? Yep. So hot off the success of the Age of Sigmar event, Season of War, G-Dub invested in a pretty cool-looking website to track the campaign and advance the storyline. Once again, player actions helped dictate which factions ended up in control of which planets in the Connor system in lore, but G-Dub had kind of a set of plot points that they knew they were going to advance through. Although the website isn't up anymore, you can still find a couple of PDF resources as well as some screen grabs from when it was happening. And oddly enough, people still write about the fate of Connor as if it's a campaign that's about to launch. I found an article that was written like a week and a half ago and I was trying to find some pictures to use um, in the video component of this by Spiky Bits that was like, are you guys excited about the fate of Connor? And I'm like, oh, this must be an old archive. No, it was written three weeks, uh, three months ago. I'm there like, has to be something the on campaign's the done. <laughs> What's up? There, there, has, there has to be something on the Wayback Machine. Uh, there, like, everything's oh, that, on the Wayback yeah. Machine. Yeah, you can probably find it on the Wayback Machine. 
It, it was neat. Uh, it was up. I want to say it was up when we started the podcast because I'm pretty sure we grabbed some pictures and linked to it in one of our early episodes. There was there was a really the cool map before the third price hike for GW Spruce. <laughs> want to see those prices again? Um. So other notable campaigns, while not attached to worldwide events, there are several other publications which detail some out out some of the various campaigns that existed before the release of the Crusade rule set. The 2001 City Fight Codex inter, uh, introduced the map campaign of Vogon. The Vogon map, you can find it's fucking dope. It's a capital city of the Imperium world of Kayazan. There are a bunch of supporting battle zones, deployments, and battle reports in White Dwarf over the next several years, with the last one being released in 2005. It was called the Conclusion of the Vogon Campaign. The map is really, really cool. I will link it in the show notes. Um, if you want an awesome campaign map to start with, it's a really cool one. You can kind of like highlight different sectors. There's like an imperial bastion and like a shrine, and they have a, a battle that takes place in the shrine. And uh, Marky and I have talked about this in the past. City fight was dope because everything was so densely packed with terrain. This was... reminds me of the Death Watch RPG, where they actually do have a cityscape that you can actually go on that has the hexes, the actual RPG book itself. That matches exactly what you're talking about there. I can't believe I didn't think about it earlier. So the Vogon campaign map isn't hexes. It's, it's Imperial sectors. It's, it's, it's really cool. It's hard to describe, yeah. but it's really cool. It'd be more like if you're familiar with the map of Waterdeep, there's like the Traveler's District. That's yeah. a little bit more how the map of Vogon is. To me, it's iconic, probably because this was like the heyday of me getting super deep into the game. So the next one was the Dark Crusade. This was a U.S. set of events only in the two in 2006, and it was used to expand the lore and the model lines of the Dark Templars, which at that point hadn't really seen any love since the worldwide campaign Armageddon that they had been introduced in. This is also where the Tau got some new stuff, including the Crute and the Vespid lines getting expanded a little bit. I say expanded, but the Vespid's getting added, the Crute getting a couple of extra things. This is another widely covered set of battle zones, deployments, and lore, as well as other tidbits that are kind of sprinkled throughout the White Dwarfs of the era. McCraig is another big one. Battle of McCraig box set. You had mentioned earlier that box sets were a great place to find this stuff. The Battle of McCraig box set had, I think, six campaigns that, or six missions that were all linked to each other, with the narrative being rescue the pilot or eat the pilot, depending on whether or not you got the Tyranid side of that box or the Space Marine side of that box. Battle of McCraig box set, in my mind, stands out because it was probably one of the first times that like valuable, cool, sought-after terrain was released with a box set. I know a lot of people have a nostalgia plug for the old cardboard stuff, but it always bugged me. And the, the trees slash building corners from the third edition box set weren't are cool, and I still have them, but they really weren't that cool. There's a crash spaceship in McCraig. They're rose-tinted yes. cool. Rose-tinted, yes, exactly. <laughs> They're cool because I still own them. <laughs> they are cool until I sell them on Etsy. <laughs> there you go. So the last one that we're going to mention and kind of to wrap up our episode here, although I have a feeling we're probably going to spill over a little bit into some war zone stuff because I know, Ick, you've got some knowledge you can drop on us about the various war zones, was and the I Vigilus. And I Vigilus as well. Okay. So yeah, the Vigilus campaign. So this was separated into two campaign books, Vigilus Defiant and Vigilus Ablaze. These were both released in 2018. The first half covers the War of the Beasts, 
not the war of the beast, the war of the beasts. And the second half covers the war of nightmares. These are actually still pretty easy to find and they dovetail really, really easily into crusades and into the war zone stuff that's coming out now. In fact, I think Vigilus is getting some support soon. Yes. Or just did get some support. They're they're getting they're gonna get some love. Um yeah. reason I love the Vigilus campaign is if you look at the way they had those specialist attachments. Um if we're mixing if we're if we're marrying the actual fluff and crunch here as we sh- as you know Warhammer really should more often GW should push it more, in my opinion. You have specialist attachments that have the different rules for that. That was the predecessor to armies of renown which really pushed that flavor to the max that that was the thing that clicked into my mind as you were talking earlier i had mentioned that the black templars were introduced in the armageddon book and then i falsely said the salamanders were introduced in slander the book it was the first army of renown it was a salamander's army of renown just like the speed the cult of speed is an army of renown and they actually did use the term army of renown then however they didn't use it again until very recently so it's not really a term that we associate with earlier editions because it wasn't really a thing it was one of those like what gw does they're like oh yeah there's an asteroid over here with a bunch of guns in it yeah, and honestly, anyway. Army of Renown is just uh, code talk for, um, we thought this was a cool crusade, um, or like flesh, this is a flesh, this is a cool fluff thing, and yeah. Greg from um, Greg from the mailroom wouldn't give me my uh, my mail from my wife for 20 years until I put his, his Speed Freak mob, and then he got the one ninth edition. Oh, yeah, that was Mark. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that will uh, that'll wrap it up for our first episode here. We'll be back with episode two of our Crusade series to talk about some of our favorite Crusade moments, both in official events and some of the homebrew Crusades we have played in. I definitely have a story I'm going to bring up from Warhammer Fantasy Battle because I was very, very involved with the M-Times event. I, I also have a couple of others, including an Escalation League that had some really cool stuff that was worked into it. There is an endless set of campaign information out there with GW releasing lots of others through White Dwarfs up until now, not to mention all of the fan campaigns that have come out of several online communities. Daka Daka has done some really cool stuff. Uh, very, very arguably, Frontline Gaming made a business out of doing campaign stuff. A lot of the campaign ideas the you know before Crusades existed, before the term Crusade existed, in the gameplay, a lot of these campaign ideas that we're talking about that lead into this narrative play are the reason that the game developed into what we enjoy today, which is pretty damn cool. But let us know. Did we leave out your favorite campaign? Did we leave out a worldwide campaign that I somehow missed? Or was there a UK-only campaign that I didn't chronicle? Have one in mind that you want to run or something that you want to design, you can get into contact with us pretty easily. Email us directly at underthehiveofmadness at gmail.com or jimdarkgaming at gmail.com. Or you can become involved with our Discord community. We love to share in your homebrew lore, answer any questions you might have, and much, much more. We feature community lore in our Tales from the Hive episodes, and we dive into spooky dooky side of things with our Lorus Obscurus episodes. So share with us your lore and your real-world ghost stories, either through email or through Discord. You can also find us online with our website or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
I generally leave all of the links to everything down in the show notes to make your life easier. If you would like to help the podcast grow, you can do that by liking and reviewing us wherever you get your podcast fix. We are on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and a bunch more. If you would like to help us grow and meet some of our milestones and goals as far as expanding our company, you can join us over on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash under the hive of madness. All Patreon members get access to video versions of our podcast episodes. That includes some bonus content. There was a bunch of bonus content today. We almost hit an hour of bonus content. So if you are thinking, if you're on the fence with Patreon, there are probably close to like 20-ish hours of extra content there, I would say. And you get to hear Ryan flub everything under the sun and then yell at me about how I'm going to have to edit everything while he whips yep. me. And I like it. <laughs> you also get access to our painting contest, which we run quarterly. You can win a pretty dope trophy through that as well as some other perks at higher levels like polls on future episodes. Ick can attest to the fact that our next miniseries will be on Gene Steeler Cults because these guys chose it. We also have some art assets that you can use if you want to order custom objective markers or maybe you just really like either our podcast logo or the Jim Dark logo and you want like a poster or something on your wall. We provide high quality PDFs that you can take to your favorite printers. I, I kiss mine before I go to bed because I kiss the every, homies every goodnight night, every night. Every night. <laughs> every night. We also try to do giveaways a couple of times a year. These could be sticker packs that we send out to some of our patrons or they could be giveaways or raffles for things like entire start collecting sets. We generally try to do giveaways a couple times a year, but the best way to help us grow and do more of that stuff is to help our business expand through Patreon. Yeah, I think that's it, guys. Unless you, uh, Ick, do you have anything you want to shout out? I have a lot of things I want to shout, but most of those will put me on the ATF watch list. No, um, next <laughs> um, <laughs> it. Going, we're going to the woods. No, um. So, been working with um with my group, my boys, my dirty Mike and the gang. We have a uh, our own YouTube channel where we are focusing on promoting a lot of mental health, community, and just friendship through the hobby itself. And we're trying to show that through narrative style play. We're going to be setting up actually our own crusade. This is all just serendipity, moving it all in a, a large um crusade for us a large narrative the nice. end goal for one of our guys Wilsonius, our dedicated blueberry player is to get his krieg up and running by that point and to also get it to where he can run three land raiders the spartan from the horus heresy set and every terminator he owns so he can actually play bumper cars for once when you can't do that oh in a 2000 point game so what what's your what's your show called oh wow yeah we have a we have a name who i should man it's almost like you're good at this job, and I'm not. We are Objective Insecure. Objective Insecure, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Not a Twitter yet, but I should do that now that I said that, because someone's going to grab it. And we'll be the real uh, Objective Insecure. We'll, be, we'll say we're really Wait, insecure Mark, about our objectives. Mark, did you just grab it? <laughs> just just grab it. Just sell it, it make, <laughs> I will make a fat Marky meme. I will make you sell, fat Titus. I'm gonna put more jelly rolls on you. No, but um, Yo. but yeah, objective insecure. <laughs> cool. We we want to promote narrative. We want to promote non-tournament play, which is perfect. So because we're setting up our series for 
going of uh, four narrative nerds go try to win the Bay Area Open. It'll be great. There you go. <laughs> well, very cool. Yeah, we'll we'll drop some links to X stuff down in our show notes as well, just to make it a little bit easier for you guys, gentlemen. I don't know about you, but I'm getting pretty sick of hearing somebody walk behind us, turn around, and there's no one there. Also, uh, Marky keeps talking about something like a vacuum cleaner and a green suit, so he can deal with the ghosts. I don't. I don't understand. He keeps raving about mansions. Very strange. Yeah, there's something that just keeps breathing in my ear, so I'm just kind of like with the little vacuum. Uh, trying to get rid of it. That's the water kick. Oh, oh, the what? The water that you brought us that we weren't that, that that's cleaner and not supposed to make us hallucinate. Ryan, oh, I told no, you that, not to bother me. Nice. Clean my room. I'm gonna clean my room. Well, quit, quit jerking off with the vacuum. No, no. If you wanted, if you wanted good water, but it was in the fridge. You know, it's it's a little Fiji one. It's a five dollar fee, but you know, or five crown, yeah, yeah. crown or throne. The hell is that? That's that's that. They're, they're, that's some upper high. You're shit, man. selling water out of the old abandoned asylum. Yeah, it's very. Nobody lucrative. ever comes here. And half the people here, half the people here, don't remember it because they have multiple personality disorder. So I get like triple the business. Yeah. Marky, I think I think he's one of the guys that doesn't. There's no one here. There is no escape. <laughs> there is only water and water accessories. Would you like to buy a softener for your delivery service, sir? <laughs> there, is no, uh, there is no Zool. <laughs> it's all, it's all that's in my head right now. It's you can cool. catch us here at 665.66UHMR Camrat Radio next time. Remember to bring that same ratty attitude and make sure that you hit about the same ratty time. Remember, there are two formed emperors inside of you. One of them wants chaos. The other one wants destruction, which is perfect because they're inside you eating your innards. That's that's horrifying, motherfucker. Motherfucker. <laughs> motherfucker. That's, that's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>